When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Onanism edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. We have a particularly uh, narcissistic and masturbatory set of topics today, and amazingly, they don't involve media people talking about the media. So you have that to look forward to, an entire <laughs> show of no one talking about the media. Um I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, available in all good bookstores soon. Hello, Felix. Hello, Kathy. And Jordan Wiseman being on holiday and escaping the swamp that is New York City has been replaced by someone much better. Hello. Say hi. Uh, hi, Felix. This is this is Josh Barrow. This is the Josh Barrow. He is um, a senior editor at Business Insider and generally just a person on the internet who says clever things. I, I like that. I'm going to go with the Josh Barrow. The Josh often. Barrow. I'm, I'm not just Josh Barrow. Yeah, you have now. You have. You know. You're not just any old like. You know. Barrow anymore. You're just you're you're the, you're, you're the Josh Barrow. You know, actually, uh, the unfortunate thing about the internet is I've learned there is one other Josh Barrow. He lives in Arizona. So technically, I'm not the Josh Barrow. You're just, a Josh Barrow. I'm a Josh wait, Barrow. Wait a second. You, there's only one other person with your name? It's a it's a very rare last name, actually. There's it, no double. There the are end. very few Felix Salmon. Did I ever so. tell you that I went to a dentist once and there were three Catherine O'Neills? And they had to figure out who I was. Like, what, like with appointments on the same day? The same dentist. <laughs> not the same day. No, I was the only one with appointment at that time, anyway. Um, so this week's show is going to talk about how you can hook up your digital masturbation device to the internet why you would want to do this we wanted to call it the vaginal edition <laughs> this but- is basically the quantified <laughs> vagina edition of <laughs> slate money because we're going to talk about like the internet of tampons yes. and all of this kind of stuff it's it's going to be messy but and we're also going to talk because josh is here and he um has economic chops that the rest of us don't really have um we're going to talk a little bit about macro for a change a little bit about productivity and all those people getting jobs and what that means for the economy um but first we are going to talk about hedge funds because a rather interesting new report just got put out by barclays who rather than just looking at the amount of money in hedge funds or the total return of hedge funds started 
being very sensible and looking at hedge funds the way that hedge funds want to be looked at in terms of this bizarre thing called alpha, which we can talk a little bit about what alpha is. And what people claim to be paying for when they buy a hedge fund is not massive hedge fund returns, which is more of a sort of venture capital thing, but it's this thing called alpha. It's diversification. It's like you get um, risk-adjusted returns. So even if you underperform the stock market, you can still have alpha even if, if you're in a low-risk portfolio, that kind of thing. And Barclays looked at hedge funds from way back in the 80s all the way through to 2016 and found that they really did generate alpha, about 7% um, alpha over that period, which meant that your risk-adjusted returns were, were better than they would normally have been and you're making money and they might even be worth the fees. The interesting thing is that that was only the case until 2011. And over the past five years, hedge funds as a group, as a whole, and they have managed to add about a trillion dollars in assets over those five years. Um, But over those five years, their alpha has been negative by about 1% a year. So how do they actually calculate this? Josh, you want to jump in? Yeah, well, so I, I guess the, the easiest way to explain alpha is actually to start with beta, which is the other kind of return people talk about. And so beta is basically a, an expression of the fact that if an investment is riskier, then it should return more over time. So by turning up the dial on risk, you can get a higher average return for ye- per year, but you have to accept that increased amount of risk. So, like, so, so yeah, so te- tech low- stocks have a high beta, mm-hmm. U.S. Treasury bonds have a low beta, and then there's a bunch of stuff in between. And, and so basically the, the risk your asset, the higher your expected return should be. And so what you do is you measure the riskiness of your portfolio, and then you kind of, you know, draw that up against the the risk return line and then read it across. And that's your beta return. And so if your return is higher than that for the riskiness of your um, portfolio, then that's positive alpha. And if it's lower than that, it's negative alpha. That's actually not the understanding I have of alpha. And I worked at a hedge fund. So okay, let, let so me let, just... Let's have the Kathy O'Neill explanation <laughs> of alpha. Um, as I was explaining when I worked at DE Shaw, alpha is the is the the return you get that's uncorrelated to the market, that's uncorrelated to beta. Now, beta we got right. Beta is what you get for putting your money in um, the, in the market in like an index fund. If you, if you get twice as much return, then you have a leverage index fund or something like that. But, but if, it's ex- have... if it's exactly this twice, if exactly twice, then it's mean it's perfectly correlated with the market, right? That's still beta. Yeah. What well, alpha what, is no, is no, when no, it's but, yeah, uncorrelated. Was... I think that's the same thing. Okay, let's just stop again. That, yeah, jo- Josh is right. It's basically the same thing. If you have twice as much return by leveraging up it up twice, then you have twice as much risk. And so you need to get twice as much return just to stay at one beta. The the correlation is another way of saying the same thing, because the only way that you can get a return higher than the beta is you can't do that just by leverage, because that just increases your risk. And, and by increasing your risk doesn't increase your risk adjusted return. The only way that you can get alpha is by doing something which is different from the market. I totally agree. And it is about diversification. And and I don't think we're really totally disagreeing um, because you're right that if you just got a leverage index fund, you would be doubling your risk. So that's not, that's not the point. My point, all I'm saying is I think the definition of alpha 
is that it's uncorrelated to beta. Yeah, I think I, th- I think the way to square this is basically when we're saying, you know, the if the beta is how much you should have gotten for the given kind of in, in the riskiness of the investment. So that that's that means in a given year. So like if you said that a certain kind of stock ought to return 8% a year because it's so risky, um, but the stock market has a great year and it returns 20% like other stocks of similar risk tend to do, that 12% difference is not alpha. That's just correlation to the market. The market had a particularly good year. The alpha is if your stock outperforms what would have been expected in that given year, given how other assets with a similar underlying risk profile perform. So I think that's that. So that's the correlation. I think we're coming to yeah, yeah. we're coming to. But, but in any case, the the point is the alpha is the thing that institutional investors pay for when they pay their 2 and 20 to index funds. Absolutely. What they're looking for at the end of the day is diversification. Or they, well, okay, so now now we're bringing up something interesting because it's not exactly the same thing. Alpha and diversification, like, yes, you're right that alpha is, um, is, is in one sense defined as diversification, but in another sense, alpha and diversification are two different things. And the puzzle here is why are people continuing to throw money into hedge funds even if they've been having negative alpha over the past five years? And this seems to be a pretty consistent long-term trend now. Um, probably uh, something to do with just the sheer amount of money in hedge funds, that it's probably easier to outperform when you have a small amount of money than when you have trillions and trillions of dollars like hedge funds do now. And there's an answer to this question. It's not just, oh, my God, these institutional investors are stupid, which is the, you know, obvious, like, we want to laugh at rich people answer. But it's also that there's this weird thing called the efficient frontier, which Josh can sort of, you know, explain a bit more about if you if he wants. But if you throw in a completely different asset class, like hedge funds, which does something which stocks and bonds don't do, then that gives you a little bit of safety in terms of just, uh, it's almost like an insurance policy, that if the stocks and the bonds do badly, then there's a chance that the hedge funds will still nonetheless do okay and help your overall returns. And just like an insurance policy, it's okay for an insurance policy to be expected to cost you money. But that is diversification, right? I mean, what you just described is we're saying, oh, this is an uncorrelated asset class. So when you stick it into my holdings, I have a diversified portfolio, which gives me like more options for my efficient frontier. And the point is that you get the diversification benefits, even if you have negative alpha. Yeah. And and you're right that there is a really weird conundrum there. Like you'd expect it. Okay, I'm okay with it. You know, you want diversification, but at the expense of actually losing money. Sounds weird. Yeah, I mean, so the the interesting thing here is that it's diversification that that you can't get from anywhere else. That's the key thing because uh, you know the s- investments have to have to they have to compensate the investor for risk, but they only have to compensate for certain kinds of risk. Like it would be very risky to own stock in just Exxon, um, but they don't have to pay a premium for the fact that it would be very risky to own stock in just one company because investors can easily diversify on their own by buying mutual funds and owning and, and owning the whole market. The issue here seems to be that the hedge funds are providing a kind of diversification that can't be easily replicated through other investments, and that you know, can justify and, the and the And the reason that the investors are desperate for that kind of diversification is because everything has become increasingly correlated. And what's more, there's the stock market as a whole has become increasingly correlated. The stocks generally move up and down in tandem with each other. And 
that actually helps to explain the lower alpha as well. That when all stocks move up and down in tandem, it's hard to outperform. It's hard to pick the winners and short the losers because there are no winners and losers. They're all just going up and down together. Yes. Um, so I have a and theory. And so you have this stock that. market which is going up and down together, and you're like, I don't want to just own the stock market. I want something else. And hedge funds, you know, are still perceived, rightly or wrongly, as offering that something else. Right. So I, I have a theory about why hedge funds aren't making as much money as they used to. Um, and it's somewhat what you're just saying, what we were just saying, like everybody started diversifying in the same way. So all these portfolios were attached to each other and they went up and down in tandem. And then except for the hedge funds, whose job it is to not is to not go up and down with the market. So they don't. They're pretty good at that. They're not perfect at that. Some people's theory is that they literally just delay up gyrations of the market more than actually have uncorrelated gyrations. But but here's my theory. Um, basically, it's the fact that quants like myself have been around for a generation now. And what happens is they get trained at a certain hedge fund, the quantitative hedge funds, they see patterns, and then some of them quit and start their own hedge funds. And this kind of the, the sort of the institutional knowledge gets spread around. And all hedge funds essentially have the same approach uh, to, to investing, which is why they're, they're all competing for the same pieces of pie. That might be true for stock hedge funds i don't think that's necessarily true for like fixed income why would it be different i don't know i just have this weird feeling that like (laughs) bond trading is just qualitatively different from trading stocks but but, but quants are not qualitatively different from other quants aren't there fundamental macro reasons why things have gotten more correlated stock prices have been hugely moved by central bank movements um a lot of the stories about why companies are profitable or unprofitable are not so much about the individual strategies pursued by their management teams but by you know things that have moved global macro forces around that's going to make it harder to pick one company and say this company is better than that company there should just Correct. be fewer opportunities to find out and, and the other thing is that no one really knows how to play the zerp trade as it were like if you if you see central banks around the world all keeping interest rates at zero uh it's really hard to say well how does one invest in that environment no one's really managed to answer that question and in fact a lot of the answers are oh shit this probably means that asset prices are going to fall the minute that interest rates start to rise. So everyone's trying to position themselves so they don't lose money when interest rates, if and when interest rates start rising. And in the meantime, they're just sitting there like scared, more scared that prices are going to fall than like having any real strategy for making money. Again. Well, I, I would, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to like bring this up one level. I feel like the tr- the other thing that's happening is that we have all been trained, all the investors of the modern day have been trained with the same theories, like this Markowitz theory of modern portfolio theory that we're talking about, the efficient frontier stuff. It, it trains us to sort of react to the world economy in the same way. So we have a bunch of people sort of repeating each other's like strategies. And it does, in fact, make it extremely predictable when some kind of interest rate changes like what happened everybody knows what's going to happen everybody reacts the same way there's very little heterogeneity in, in investing and that's a really good point that when you know the early hedge fund managers like george soros started their early hedge funds you know all of this talk of alpha and sharp ratios and modern portfolio theory like didn't exist and now that everyone is judging hedge funds on these same metrics that 
serves to homogenize everyone. And it might be very useful to be able to have a single metric by which to judge hedge funds. But at the same time, it does have a homogenizing effect for sure. I, I guess my question is, is that is that homogeneity in thinking? Is that an error? Is there money being left on the table by people who would think differently about investing? Or is it because there is ba- broadly one correct way to think about most investing opportunities? I think I think it's an error. I think that if you look at the most successful stocks in the world, and even if you look at the most successful individuals in the world who've like invested and made a lot of money, um, they tend to have quite a few drawdowns on an order of like 50% over the course of their lifetimes that you go you go it's not like a steady upwards line it's a jagged line which winds up very high at the end and if you are competing in the world of hedge funds where everyone is looking at your quarterly performance and you if you have a bad year or heaven forfend you have two bad years or heaven forfend you lose half your money you know people are just going to pull their money around out and and leave you high and dry then it's very very difficult to um really implement those kind of strategies i'll I'll just i'll just add i think i'm basically echoing what felix just said is that when you do get trained in this quote unquote right way of thinking you like ironically have very high risk aversion and like when, when i worked i in the in finance i noticed that actually investors for the most part have really high risk aversion so it, you'll never get people like george soros who really bet really made a big bet he's never going to be you know included in this group of people that follow the herd but most people do follow that herd yeah, although I, I would say that if, if you have some investors who, who follow a, you know, a disciplined risk-averse strategy and then you have others who sort of make a bunch of big bets at random and you have a, a lot of people in both of those categories, the highest performer will be somebody who made a bunch of big bets at random. Yes, and the problem is that the highest performer is going to be a guy who made a big bet with a relatively small amount of money and got a bunch of headlines and then everyone throws money at him ex post and that ex post money does really badly. <coughs> John Paulson. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the um but as far as hedge funds as an asset class are concerned you know people are not putting big bets on individual fund managers they're placing billions of dollars with really huge boring companies with names like Oxif which just quietly run hedge funds and don't really fall into the you know and, and don't do this sort of big bet um, strategies because they know it doesn't scale or they can't really sell it. It doesn't scale and their investors would not like it if they did it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, Josh, start talking. Uh, So uh, we got productivity numbers for the second quarter. um, And it's a third consecutive quarter in which productivity fell. Uh, so the average worker at work did less per hour than they did the previous quarter. So, I, I mean, as a journalist, I find this um, scary as all hell. Can you explain to me, is, is productivity a real thing? Because the idea that I can measure the value of my 
the the amount of value that I created per hour over the course of my professional career. It's like, really? What? How? And the idea that that's correlated in any way to like how much money I make is just I don't understand it on an intuitive level. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the measurement is hard. And I and I think intuitively what you're pointing out here is, you know, you might make something that sells for $3, but if the consumer values it at $15 and would be willing to pay a lot more than they did, that doesn't show up in the data. It doesn't show up in GDP. It doesn't show up in productivity. And so when we've had, we've had these three quarters of actually declining productivity, which is sort of alarming. Productivity is supposed to go up over time. We've also had about a 15-year run of just much slower productivity growth than we had been seeing in decades prior to that after World War II. Um, and so one of the explanations that people give is what you just said, basically, which is that, well, they're not measuring the productivity correctly. People make apps that are available for free, and that doesn't show up as, as or, or productivity. My point, and, my point wasn't yeah. so much that it wasn't measured correctly or that I'm actually more productive than I was 15 years ago. It's more that I'm not. <laughs> I mean, like, this idea that the natural order of things is that I should be more productive than I was right. 15 years ago. I'm like, no, I remember it's sort of 15 years ago. I was really productive back then. <laughs> and I, I have, like, another sort of related question to Felix's, which is, look at the Olympics. You know, we always, you know, it's shocking to me how many times we see world record breaks. You know, like, and it was not so shocking back in in the steroid era. But it, assuming there's cleanliness in, you know, with respect to that kind of thing. Like, why, you know... When is that going to end? When are we going to stop seeing yeah, world why, why, why is it like why does it everything ha- always have to get better? Uh, yeah, how I mean but th- this is the thing. Everything for decades now, for generations has been getting better year in and year out. What you know, the amount of money that a company can make per employee has been going up. That's productivity. The uh, amount, you know, of miles that like someone can run in an hour has been going up you right know? and all of and this by the way i want to so, throw in that women's records have been bra- been broken much more frequently which is a sign that we didn't invest as much in women's sports and that makes sense but i do think that there's some kind of natural point at which we're like yeah that's about as fast as a human being can run well so this I, it's funny because i made a numbered list of reasons why productivity might have slowed down and this is the second of six that, that you guys have hit upon <laughs> uh so yeah, the question is why? Sh- why should we get more productive? Well, let's talk about historically why we did get more productive, or wh- or what would make a person more productive. So, now, so we had basically low hanging fruit in the in the fifties and sixties, and now we've plucked it. Now it's harder to get more productive. Maybe. So, I mean, so people you can have more productivity because you have more human capital. So people become more educated. Workers are just more capable on average because people get smarter. They spend more years being uh, being schooled. Uh, maybe they get more appropriate training. Uh, you can also have better capital so you know computers made us made productivity rise pretty quickly in in the late 1990s the industrial revolution was obviously a huge driver in productivity um as as factories bought up equipment so that workers could do more work and then the third related thing is innovation um when better technologies or better work processes are developed uh then people become more productive and i think that's a lot of what's being seen in the olympics people figure out better ways to train um and then they better swimming records Right. Well, a lot the better swimming suits were given the credit for a bunch of world records which were broken was it four years ago or eight years eight ago? years ago and then they were banned and then the world records kept on getting no broken. but it, it, there was a gap for few, <laughs> there were very few uh, swimming world records in London because of right. the and this was a swimsuit thing so Beijing was the last Olympics where the men could wear the full um, length bodysuits for, for swimming and after they got rid of those there were a few years that were pretty dry in terms of world records but then as, as you described Kathy it's you know it's been it's picked up again it took a few years for whatever 
whatever other innovations were being developed to overcome the yeah, fact like, that they had like lost the people have of these worked out suits. techniques to literally i mean i was reading a profile of katie ledecky and it's just like she strokes more quickly like you know each of those strokes bang 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 like she does it on a quicker cadence than like anyone has ever I like been how this has turned into the before. olympics conversation <laughs> but I, I think it's instructive because the question is you know it it doesn't have to be true that it's possible forever to come up with better ways to swim and better ways to train to swim. It's possible that eventually all of the innovation that could be done there will be done and then people won't get any faster. Um, the the sweep of human history over, over millennia, we have periods of fast productivity growth and we have periods of basically no productivity growth for hundreds of years. So yeah, it's not a given that productivity will continue to rise, although I, it could lead to societal breakdown if that stops happening because people expect rise in living standards over time, and we can't really have rises in living standards if we don't have rises. I think in a, lo- a large proportion of this country has stopped expecting that. Uh, no, and and then the other thing is there are industries, and the one we've talked about on this show before is higher education, where there are no productivity gains that anyone can see, and there haven't been for decades, and that this is a big problem because you wind up getting these incredible. Um, Inflation, this education cost inflation, precisely because education is not getting more efficient with the rest of the economy. Yeah, but uh, although that that happens because wages rise faster than prices and wages are able to rise faster than prices because productivity is going up. And so the, the reason that causes cost inflation in education is what's the input into education? You have to hire employees to educate people. What you have to pay them rises with the with the trend of wages rising. Wages rise faster than prices because we're good at making manufactured goods more and more efficiently and their prices can in many cases go down in real terms. So if you really had a stoppage overall in productivity society-wide, then you would no longer expect wages to rise faster than prices. And that would be terrible in all sorts of ways. But one thing that would stop being a problem is cost disease and higher education because... <laughs> so one of the things, I mean, let's go there because like adjuncts, I mean, adjuncts are being paid more, they're being paid less, right? There's a huge proliferation of very poorly paid people in higher education. Of course, then there's the administration. Right. But it goes to the question of like, to what extent, and maybe this is on your list, to what extent is this just because people are being underpaid for what they're doing? I think well, it's because people are being overpaid. I mean, productivity goes down when people are paid too much and it goes up when people are paid less. You could no, double but, productivity overnight if you just cut everyone's wages in half. Yeah. Well, so let me go Let me go through what else is, is on my list. It of, also, it depends on what they're being what the thing that they're making is is bought for, how much right. that thing is, is valued. So here, here's what else is on my list in terms of reasons behind these two mysteries. One is the, the decline in productivity in recent months, and the other is the slow growth in productivity in the recent decade plus. Uh, so we covered uh, it's possible that there are innovations that are producing benefits that do not show up in productivity measures because they don't directly contribute to GDP. Um, one thing is that it's it's possible that it's just more difficult to do innovations now than it was in the past. We invented a lot of the most useful things we were going to invent. This is secular stagnation, basically. Um, one explanation for the, the trend in recent months is that there's been a shift of jobs out of mining and extraction as oil and gas prices have fallen. Workers and those, those are particularly productive jobs. Those are particularly productive jobs. A lot of workers have come out of that, gone into service industry jobs that are less productive. And so that would be a relatively good story. It would say that this is a temporary shift and that over time, low energy prices should actually make it cheaper for businesses to invest and raise productivity in the future, even though we've had a bad run of months.
months. Um, one possibility is just that businesses have not invested very much in capital and equipment over the last few years because the economy has been poor. Um, and that, again, is a story that would be likely to shift because the labor market's getting so tight. Uh, it's getting more expensive to hire workers. Businesses might instead invest more in capital, um, and that would make workers more productive. Um, one pet theory of mine, um, is that, you know, because of the tightness of the labor market, who's, you know, the average, the productivity of the average worker, you might expect to go down as people with lower education, lower skills who were unemployed when the labor market was slack get jobs. Employers, you're also seeing anecdotal stories of employers reducing education requirements for jobs, saying we can't require a bachelor degree for this job anymore. We're going to hire people we wouldn't have hired three years ago. Those workers might be less productive. Relatedly, workers could also be less productive because they're less afraid of getting fired because the labor market has gotten so strong. Or, or, or that if they do get fired, it's easy for them to find another job. Right. And I want to just come in here and say that the one thing which has always puzzled me about about productivity is the thing that's obvious to me, and maybe this is just me, but I think it's pretty obvious to a lot of people who work with and on computers all day, every day, is that if you have a really nice, fast computer with like one or two big screens, that is a very simple productivity boost. It makes you work faster and happier and easier. And like, it's just, a better way of working and a more efficient way of working. And the thing which astonishes me whenever I walk into an office is to see row upon row of crappy old computers and people throwing things at their computers and saying, oh my God, this <laughs> bloody computer, and why am I seeing this beach ball again? And the way that employers think that they should just wait until a computer has basically died before they replace it when there's if you just replaced computers on a much more regular basis and kept people much happier that would be a simple productivity boost you know you just but like great great example and i think you're right it, but i just came up with a theory just as you were speaking Go on. which is why people are not getting anything done right now <laughs> it's because they're just flipping around on social media and reading the news there's got to be there's got to be like a trump the effect. trump the trump effect too many <laughs> trump headlines has caused seriously US who, productivity to decline you, you, you think that your computer is going to be an efficiency boost but actually what you spend your time on is looking we at are, we are totally breaking the no trump rule here and i apologize to all of our listeners and i won't do it again i promise but i think we can basically all agree and i'm going to Abuse, my right. abuse my um <laughs> abuse my host privileges here by ending this segment on this that the reason why productivity has fallen for three quarters <laughs> is because trump has made america more stupid and distracted <laughs> yes okay finally i know that you are all just like suffering through that productivity thing because you wanted to hear <laughs> hey, talk about that was scintillating you were <laughs> scintillating but not it's not vaginally scintillating. Well, I, I, I wouldn't know. Um, um, well, yeah, I really, yeah. Do I, I mean, have an excuse to say that? Vaginal, yes, I do. Vaginally, <laughs> I, I feel like the effect of talk of productivity growth on, um, yeah, Kathy's vagina is something which we really shouldn't be talking about. So today, for um, for, like today, uh, we're talking about something called We Vibe. WeVibe is a vibrator that is Bluetooth connected. And it was discovered recently, um, by the way, the company that puts it out is called Standard Innovations Corporation. Uh, I love that name. Um, it turns out that the company... Uh, I wonder what their productivity growth is. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it's being used, the vibrator, once a minute, sends to the corporation uh, a check on the following data, the temperature of the device 
and um, the vibration level of the device. So, by the way, was were the people who bought this device aware of this data uh, leakage, so to speak? <laughs> I do not think they were. If the person... In fact, they were not. There was there was nothing even in the you know, the, those endless small print terms and conditions, there was nothing in there about we are going to take your most intimate measurements and measure them every minute as every time you use this thing. In fact, hackers figured it out. Hackers, like, hacked the actual Bluetooth, um, uh, like, upload and figured out what kind of information was being sent over the, over so, the internet. So we wrote about this on Fusion, and there was a lot of reaction both by the author, Cash Hill, and by everyone on Twitter saying, oh, my God, like, you know, this surely has to be the end of the whole Internet of Things tr- trend. <laughs> this is this is the point at which people are saying, you know, there's certain data I, you know, we should just never be sort of sending out into the cloud and to our corporate overlords. But my reaction was, is like, yeah, like, I, I don't quite see what harm it does if they can use that data to make me like, have better orgasms isn't that a good thing well that's what they claim they're doing by the way they're saying they're, they're just using all the information they gather to improve people's experiences um and they also suggest you just put your your smartphone into airplane mode well the manufacturer didn't suggest that but oh, that, okay. that was the hackers they're like if you don't want your data going going to, yeah. to, to the cloud then do it in Airplane mode. Yeah. Because but, apparently that's the... We just pretend like you're on an airplane. Josh hasn't said anything yet. I want to hear from Josh. <laughs> I have trouble seeing what the problem is if an anonymous corporation knows something about my masturbation technique. But on the other like, hand, it's called... What's it called? Standard Innovations Corp or yes, something? Yeah. Yes, it is. Like, I, you, you don't trust something called Standard Innovations Corp. It's, is, just, it's obviously a know, front for the North Koreans. I have actually three examples of products that are related to sex. Um, so we're going to get to why you might care about this in a second, but let me introduce my second product, which is called MyFlow. That's a Bluetooth wearable device that tracks how saturated your tampon is. Could, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that shut Josh up. <laughs> that, I still haven't figured out how you use it, but like you're supposed to, it's supposed to keep, give you a little more privacy. Kathy, and by the way, Josh, in case you don't know, Kathy is the in-house tampon expert, having yes. single-handedly <laughs> brought the sales tax on tampons in New York State down to zero. I was one of the plaintiffs, yes. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I, wrote, I wrote about that for, for the New York Times, actually. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to throw in that with this, if you're wearing this Bluetooth-enabled tampon detector thing, um, you actually have to keep something the size of a key fob on your waistband. Um, so that adds to the discussion, I assume. <laughs> People are going to be like, what's that on your waistband? Oh, nothing. Um Anyway, I, I do want to ask the question, like, why are these things Bluetooth enabled, period? You know, like, why? why? Well, because it's just a way of communicating information. Well, I mean, the, the, right, would it so be better can... if it was if you had a whole Wi-Fi thing? You know, I mean, because I assume sense. there's a there's like a MyFlow app on your phone and that's where you read out what the exactly. saturation you know, what happens, level. What happens is it sends once it's full, it sends you a, a message, which you can tailor to say anything you want. It doesn't have to be like your tampon is full. Is, is that <laughs> but I mean like, go back to the vibrator for a second. Why is it Bluetooth enabled? Oh, because it that one, I can answer that question. The reason why the vibrator is Bluetooth enabled is because it's meant to be for long distance lovers. Yes, remote and, control. And you like insert the vibrator and I am 5,000 miles away and missing you greatly. And then somehow I'm playing with my phone and you're 
I, I mean, yes, yes. 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 I okay. believe. Oh, wait. And can I just use this word because this is a real word? Is that it exists. vaginal? <laughs> no, the real word which exists is teledildonics. Nice. That is the word for it. Sweet. And there are there is there are many different devices. How much do you know about this exactly? What makes it a real word? Like just because somebody said it doesn't make it a real word. I'm pretty much, it makes it a word. Okay. Final example: Fitbit. Everyone knows about Fitbit. It turns out that that data isn't very well protected by our data protection law for medical information called HIPAA. Um, and all sorts of data has been leaked out. Um, and so this is, I'm, I'm telling you this because it will give you some pause as to why you would might or might not want people to know about your orgasm schedule. Um, so uh, somebody got... Um, got busted for claiming that she was raped when she wasn't because that Fitbit data showed that she was totally not, she was totally walking around. Someone else um, got compensated because she showed using her Fitbit data that she was um, injured and she had much, much decreased activity after that. So this, this kind of data can be used to show real things about what you're doing. Finally though, um, people had a sexual activity on their public Fitbit profiles until recently. <laughs> so it was, it was you Googleable. You could figure out, because Fitbit figures out whether you're having sex and then somehow adds it to your profile automatically and people did not enjoy this. <laughs> so and the point being like, this is this data isn't, is it just a trace of your actual activity? And there is a definite feeling that often people will make things public because they think I have nothing to hide or because they, you know, have some vaguely exhibitionist tendency or something, but they might not want that made public. Right. Especially if, you know, they're married and then their spouse sees them having sex at a time when they were not having sex with their spouse. But all of the really but, good point. But all of these are examples where if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing, it was actually perfectly good. This protected somebody from having a false accusation against them. This allowed somebody to prevail appropriately in a lawsuit when they were in fact injured. It would, you know, it would it would let spouses know if they were being cheated on. I mean, the I I think that there are, there are real upsides to this. I, th I think, and I also think a lot of this is about norms. People have expectations about what will and won't be known about them, and therefore they judge other people harshly when they learn information about them. I think if people expect that more will be known about them and that they will know more about other people, in time people will become nicer and more accepting about other people's behavior. But the the transition period could be very ugly and uh, unpleasant. Well, and I mean. I disagree. And I, th I think this is like a fundamental conversation about what is privacy and to what extent are we entitled to privacy. Um, but what's absolutely clear is that um, apps like this are, should not be trusted. There are like very few regulations. So if you're someone who does care about privacy, I would urge you not to use these apps. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. Um, okay, the numbers round. I have a number. What's your number, Kathy? It's 30,000. Um, the Brexit vote. Oh, no, not Brexit. Again. Helped knocked, it knocked more than 30,000 pounds off the price of the average property in London. And that's 30,000 devalued pounds. Yeah. That's like the, I mean, the value of the property went down 10% in any currency other than pounds just by dint of the pound getting cheaper. Yes. But it went down even in pound terms. It's a big deal. Then again, this is good for London because London property was so insanely overpriced, it needed to come down. How many more 30,000 pounds does it need to go down until some people can actually afford it? Oh, a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My number is 23. Um, we, we all hear about the, you know, anecdotal crazy seven hour waits for voting in certain districts in this country. But it turns out that the average African-American voter in this country has to wait 23 minutes to vote, which compares to 12 minutes for a white voter. Wow. That's a great study. Yeah. Uh, my number is 1979. Uh, that is the year that IBM introduced the transaction processing facility, which is the operating system on which Delta Airlines and other airlines <laughs> oh, operating I- IT systems wow. are, are still based. So this is, I mean, it's been updated, but it's still like a 37-year-old system. And then a whole bunch of stuff basically stapped on top of it, like a Jenga tower, all the things that govern mobile check-in and things like that. And that's part of why you see things like the Delta outage that happened this week that caused so many canceled flights. We've seen it previously. It was previously. like 2000, right? Uh, approximately, yeah. What language is it built in? Uh, so I'm sure it's Fortran. It's, um, I was going to go with basic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I read this. They, um, the, the modernization was they moved towards stuff being written in C. Yeah. Uh, there was some other previous language. There was also a proprietary language on which some of the the stuff associated with it was built. But the fact that built. you could, like, one small fire could, like, cause so much chaos... I mean, the fact that things are based on a 1979 system is insane. Yes, we can all agree on that. But that doesn't mean you can't have like a cloud backup of that 1979 well, system. The problem is, so there was there was a fire that caused an outage. Basically, have to turn everything back on, and then the systems all have to talk to each other, and the add-ons built on top of the systems. And w- what Delta was saying was basically that was where the problem came from. So, when's it? the last time they turned it off? Is the question? <laughs> Probably 1979. Uh, I I don't I don't know. Um, one one th- one of the a United outage that happened a, a couple of years ago was actually driven by a, a test shutdown of a system that they then couldn't couldn't get it to turn back on properly. Wow. When <laughs> and, and with those numbers, we will bring this week's episode of Slate Money to a close. Thank you for listening. Um, if you liked it, subscribe. You can find us in the iTunes store or anywhere else. But and I want to thank Zach Dynasty, who's stepped in most professionally to produce this episode, along with Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, the executive producers. Um, Panoply has all manner of podcasts, which you can find at iTunes.com slash Panoply. But most of all, I want to thank Josh Barrow for coming in and basically knowing more than Jordan Weissman. He was amazing. <laughs> it was it was it was great. And so are you just betting Jordan's not going to listen to this episode while he's on much. vacation? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of I kind of bet that Jordan never listens Jordan if you're listening right now say something next week (laughs) (laughs) Um, so next week we will be talking to Paul Ford yay because you can never have too much Paul Ford so you're going to want to listen to that one Um, and so yeah tune in next week for the productivity no the product edition 
The product edition of Slate Money is going to be funny. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.